I think my greatest, you know, experience at Miami was honestly just being with networking with professors, um, networking with other students that were different from you. And, you know, yes, I had my, you know, little fraternity sorority world that I hung out with, but I did a lot of stuff kind of outside of that. Welcome to Beyond High Street. My name is Jenny Derrick and I'm the Dean of the Pharma School here at Miami University. Today I'm joined by Siraj Marabuena, who graduated with a BN Poli Sci back in 2001. So thank you, Siraj, for agreeing to do this podcast, Beyond High Street. Thank you, Jenny, for having me on this podcast. It's great to see you again. For those who are listening, we're actually doing this in my office, which is unusual because I normally do them by Zoom, and it's just great to see you in person again too, so thank you. As our listeners know, during this podcast, we weave through a range of topics so our listeners can get to know you, more about your journey, and your reflections along the way. So before I get started with what you currently do, I'd love to know about your journey to Miami, not the farmer school, to Poli Sci, and, and just tell us how you chose to come here. Yeah, so um, thank you again, Jenny, for having me on the podcast. Um, and it's always great to be back at uh, Miami. I haven't been back here in a while, so it's uh, great to feels feels like a second home. Um, so I'm originally from Southern Ohio, born and raised in Dayton, Ohio, grew up in Centerville, Ohio, went to uh, Centerville High School. And so naturally, being from Southern Ohio, most people apply to Miami and Ohio State. Um, so it was kind of, you know, a choice of you know Ohio State or Miami, but actually Miami was not my first choice. Miami was actually my last choice, and so I didn't get into my top schools. And I actually you know begrudgingly decided to go to Miami. And then actually after my first semester, I'd even applied to transfer out of Miami, and I didn't get into the same schools that I wanted to. So here comes second semester freshman year. I was like, you know what? I'm going to make the best out of it. It was the best decision staying here. And I, you know, do not regret that decision at all. Um, so just, you know, that's how I got to Miami. And then obviously I've always been, you know, passionate about politics, international relations, and, um, and that's why I decided to be a poli-sci major, and I also wanted to do a double major into business, and so I took you know, all of my coursework, like economics, finance, accounting, and then when it got time to do a second major in finance, it's, I didn't have enough credits to quite do that, and so that's why I just finished up with my poli-sci um, degree. And one of you know, the most memorable experiences in poli-sci is I got to do a transatlantic program with uh, Dr. Warren Mason, um, in the pot for the poli sci department, and so we got to spend probably about six weeks in Europe. Um, got to meet with a bunch of different business leaders, politicians, um, and just different people that Dr. Mason had networked with over the last, you know, few decades for himself. Um, going to Luxembourg, going to London, going to Prague, uh, going to Berlin, and you know, this was back in the you know late. I guess this would probably have been. 1999, 2000, around that time. And so some of these cities like Berlin, it was really amazing to be a part of that and just to kind of see how that city has kind of, you know, grown from that point. And then even, you know, 20 plus years later, visiting Berlin recently, how that also has completely changed. So that's kind of my, you know, foray into, you know, poli-sci and then came the tough choice of post-college, you know, what am I going to do with my political science degree? And I did have a basic business background, so I thought that was very helpful. Um, so I definitely have the skill sets to do you know, any type of finance job. And so originally I wanted to work for the State Department or kind of do that type of work, but it's, you know, it's a very competitive, challenging environment. And um, I connected with one of my friends here at Miami, and there was an opportunity at Northwestern Mutual, and I started over there um, as a financial representative on their investment side. I uh, did that for a few years, and then decided I want to kind of do my own 
um, type of job. So I branched off and found my business partner, who actually was a Miami alum as well, but he was a couple years older. And uh, we started a registered investment advisory firm called the Maraboyna Group. So we actually focused on a, a global dividend portfolio, and specifically the items that I would pay attention to is finding businesses that were moving to places around the world that had a high fertility rate. So that was kind of a very unique way to kind of look at the world. And so I'd actually studied fertility rates, um, you know, at some different courses at Miami. And so that was always an interest to me. And, you know, looking at places like Procter & Gamble, like why are they moving certain operations to certain parts of the world? You know, why is, you know, Singapore, why did that become a regional hub for Procter & Gamble? It's because, you know, almost three-fifths of the world is within a four-hour area. And, you know, why were a lot of these baby formula companies moving to Africa? You know, it's just because they have the highest fertility rates in the world. And, you know, why are companies like Pepsi downsizing in Russia? Because they have a negative population growth. So those were kind of the, the, the trends that, um, you know, kind of uh, came to fruition. And um, also in our practice, we, you know, place business with other outside investment firms. And so that's how I came across Creative Wealth Media. Um, so I put a, a lot of my clients, including myself and my family, into that. And Creative Wealth Media is a film finance firm. And so it was a really unique asset class. And, you know, that's, I found it very fascinating just wanting to be in that industry. And then I guess we'll back up to you know, graduation, I actually wanted a, a career in Hollywood and wanted to live out in LA. And I applied to all the different agencies and all the different studios and it just didn't work out. But, you know, almost 20 years later, everything worked out for the best. So I love this story. And before we move on, I want to dig into a couple of things. But in spite of the slow start to embrace Miami, I also want to give thanks to you because you've served on our alumni board and you're in town right now for yes. a foundation board meeting. So the, the love and honor. Of course. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> so, so I'm intrigued by the issue of the correlation between fertility rate and investment. But what a great way to... to use that as a precursor to looking at which companies to invest in and why. Right. I mean, it's really fascinating. So when you look at the United States, are you still doing that work now around fertility? I mean, you have probably moved on to... No, I've, I, so, uh, yeah, no longer, you know, work yeah. on the asset management side yeah. of that, so I've left that behind. Yeah. Um, but it was, you know, it was, it's just... It, it, it speaks to kind of this, you know, some of the topics that we talk about, um, you know, globally, and specifically, Elon Musk recently has been discussing, you know, what are the solutions to, to the world economy? It's we need to increase our population, and you know, there's very few places in the world that have a high, you know, fertility rate, and that's basically sub-Saharan Africa, and the United States. It's an artificial number. We do have a positive rate, uh, 2.1 children, you know, is the replacement rate, right. but that's because of immigration, yeah. and so. I think we forget sometimes that, um, you know, if you take away immigrants out of the United States, we have a negative population growth. Which we find in higher education to be a bit of a, a challenge for us as we look at dem demographic changes and its impact right. on enrollment. <laughs> yeah. so, so talk to me, you talked about the asset class and you had a wish to go into Hollywood, but so was that the trigger for you to go into investment around the creative arts? Um, so it's, it's just, you know, I never really thought about ever crossing back over into, you know, the entertainment film industry and you know and I and I viewed that investment opportunity is simply as an investment opportunity we run it basically almost like a private equity fund so it's just we're kind of agnostic to what the project is we just make sure we look at the great fundamentals and the financials of a specific project and so I'm very agnostic to what that 
you know, project would be and just look at it simply as a non-correlated investment. So I want to dig into that. I'm going to ask you in two different ways. One, I mean, there'd be projects you have done that you just simply loved the project, but there are others that you've done where the numbers were without question as they should be. So when I talk to you about you, ask you about your favorite projects that you've worked on, can you take it in both ways and explain why they might be different? So, well, I'll give two examples of, mm. you know, fun projects. So these are your big theatrical releases, so like Ghostbusters Afterlife or House of Gucci, you know, with Lady Gaga. So those are your fun Hollywood movies, you know, large cast, you know, fun premieres, fun parties, you know, and then those unfortunately didn't do as well because of the pandemic. And so, you know, that was something we have no control over. And so those numbers, you know, weren't the greatest as far as box office returns. So that's an example of those were fun projects to work on, but the return didn't exactly come as something very positive. It was slightly positive versus, you know, a project that, you know, I did called Monkey Man um, with Dev Patel, um, which comes out in Netflix um, at the end of this year. So it's an action movie. Um, and, he, you know, he plays this uh, orphan child, not like in Slumdog Millionaire, a little bit different. He's gained 30 pounds for it. So it's a big action movie. Uh, we did this with the producers of John Wick. So it's in very much in that style. Um, and financially, that was probably a much better investment than Ghostbusters or Hasaguchi. So and on investment wise, I would much rather do a project like that so versus it, that. What, made, what were the variables that made it a, a, a great project from a financial So something like Monkey Man is straight to streaming. So when you're when a project is straight to streaming, we don't have the risk of a, you know, a global slowdown with the pandemic and, you know, movie theaters being shut down, that's straight to streaming and there's no distribution expense and then there's no marketing expense because, you know, the Netflixes of the world, they bear all of those um, expenses. So the margins are much higher. So we can do a movie. So a movie like that was made for about ten and a half million, and we sold it for thirty thirty one million dollars. Yeah, and and of course, I mean, there was a premise in there that we uh, we relied on theatre going. But tell me about the population now. Are people back to theatres, and what what is how does that influence choices you make? So what's happened in the industry, and in, and in, in my opinion is the smaller independent films that are more, you know, geared towards adults that are lower budgets basically got wiped out during the pandemic. And unfortunately, in order to fill theater counts, you need to have popular films like Spider-Man, which Spider-Man, which was released, I believe, at the end of last year, that went well past a billion dollars. So before where it would have maybe five or six screens out of a multiplex of 20 are now going to be half of it. So unfortunately, the number of movies in a, in a multiplex is reduced, but you're going to have more screens of a popular film. So your Star Wars type movies, we call them, you know, tent poles or event driven films. That's kind of the future where all of the money is being derived from. And anything that has more of a, you know, more geared towards adults, that's a lower budget will go straight to streaming. So the economics just work out better. It's just um, with the pandemic, um, the older crowd just kind of got scared about being in theaters. And that trend hasn't really reversed, but younger people are, are going back in droves. It's really interesting. So, so I mean, for a lot of people listening, they may not think of movies as an asset class. So, right. so when you raise money, you know, how do you sell that? It's interesting. So there's, you know, 40,000 films that are released in, in any given year. 
but as far as what goes theatrical, there's maybe less than 200. So if you've invested in any of those other, you know, almost 39,000 films, you've probably lost all of your money. So I think distinguishing, you know, the main factor of, you know, who we are as creative wealth versus anyone else in the industry is we're actually partnered with the major studios. So we've done, you know, with Warner Brothers, we did The Mule, we did Joker, with Sony, we did Man from Toronto, um, with uh, MGM, we did House of Gucci, and then the upcoming um, movie with Paramount is Babylon um, that will come out with Brad Pitt um, this December. So we are we have strategic partnerships with the best of the studios, and then our streaming partners. Um, we've sold over ten films to Netflix, and then we've done work with Hulu, Amazon, um, and all of the you know all the all the major streamers. So. That's what sets us apart from everyone else, is having the right partnership. And I'm sure in all of that, you, you, I'm not sure the, what the right term is, but you probably get what I would call vanity investors too. Yes. Talk to me about <laughs> that, that group. <laughs> so I would say um, yeah. our, our largest um, investor, which is over 70% you know, of the assets of the firm, is a Canadian pension fund. So those individuals are obviously not really interested in the day-to-day, -day, which movies are we doing and coming to premieres. That's, you know, it's a public pension fund, so it's a board that um, is our kind of liaison uh, with them. But we have a lot of, you know, high net worth individuals, a lot of foreign investors that are kind of attracted to the glitz and glamour of Hollywood. And we try to explain to them sometimes when we have different projects, you know, let's look at the financial numbers, let's not look at the cast necessarily. You know, we're obviously finance people, so we don't really care about who's in the movie, who's in the director. We trust our partners that this is a project that's worth it. We do our own financial analysis. We hire out independent analysts as well. Um, so that's kind of a give and take, and we always tell people, and most of the time it's like, the one that seems the most glitzy is not necessarily the most profitable. I'll give the example of like House of Gucci. It's, you know, it was the most glamorous film at the end of last year with Lady Gaga and Gucci and all of that stuff. And, you know, it was a positive return, but it wasn't anything that was crazy. Um, so that's just an example of the glitz and the glamour doesn't exactly equal a good ROI. You must have some interesting conversations with people. So um, one of the conversations you and I had I thought was fascinating about where the ideas for movies come from. Are you, do you pitch to studios or do they pitch to you? And, if, and either or, how do you decide that this is a, a good opportunity? So it's a collaborative um, effort and goes back and forth. Obviously, most of the studios have established you know, intellectual property, so you have your you know, Spider-Man franchise or Star Wars. But anything um, different from that, a lot of the smaller production companies will bring that IP to the studio. So they do need, you know, especially in the horror genre, that's something that studios don't necessarily own the IP to it. They work with you know, different producers to kind of bring that to them. And then just any smaller, popular type of um, you know, drama or something like that, that will be brought to the studio from smaller producers like ourselves. Um, and then as far as, you know, the, I guess the collaborative part of that as well is, I mean, it's just bouncing ideas back and forth. But one thing that has um, changed over the last, I would say probably 10, 15 years is data collection. And I know we spoke about that um, in Dallas. And I just find it very fascinating that the streamers have collected so much data that that's why when we talked about there's no advertising, they know exactly what you want and they will gear whatever's you know, upcoming next week or in two weeks um, for you. And they're so specific on what they need and what they want that they will tell us, you know, we're looking for a documentary that's focused on the 1970s, that's focused on baseball. So it's just a very 
you know, simple directive to us. And so we would go back to our production side and ask them, hey, this is what Netflix said they're interested in. Let's see what we can find. So we were able to find a documentary um, based on the, uh, Reggie Jackson. And so the, we had a producer that made it. Um, you know, we made it for 1.5 million, sold it for a little, little less than 4 million. And so that's the type of stuff that's happening right now. And the same thing with Monkey Man. They said, we would like something that is an Indian-centric movie that's filmed in India, has an Indian cast, that's an action movie. So then we went to Dev Patel, and he's like, I would love to do this, I want to write it, and I want to direct it. So that's kind of how these projects are coming to fruition right now. And it's really interesting, as everyone is now more in tune to global content, um, you know, Korea has made a huge um, push into to Hollywood, and so a lot of that content is, you know, being you know produced, you know, rapidly. You know, I think Netflix's spend alone on uh, Korean content per year is about three hundred million, and so the newest genre um, is really interesting. It's actually non-Bollywood South Indian action content. Mm. So if you look at uh, recently, there's been a couple of movies that are showing up on the top 10 lists um, on Netflix. That's, that's really interesting uh, that that's happening. So describe the genre. If it's non-Bollywood, is it styled, sim, sim, you know, it's action? It's action. Yeah. It's more action-oriented. It's less song and dance. Right. Um, it's, you know, Bollywood films. I actually had the opportunity mm. to go to South India a couple uh, months ago, and so I was able to meet with some of these studio uh, representatives and some of the talent there. And, you know, Bollywood and some of the South Indian films are, are very different. Um, the younger generation of India, which is obviously it's almost a $400 million, 400 million person group, is not really in tune with the song and dance as much anymore. So they want more Western type of mm. action and more kind of drama type stuff. So you're starting to see the, the shift in the trends and partnering with an American studio always you know, makes their content a little bit different. And so there's that opportunity That's as well. That's really interesting. So you've, you, when I met you in Dallas, I met four of our Miami grads yep. who work for you. So talk to me about the roles they have. And these are farmer school grads, I think, all Actually, two, uh, two, two of the four two, uh, are, right. uh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, so tell me about the roles they have, and I think it's really important, especially for our students who are listening, and because each of them you'd mentored, I think, correct. through the fraternity. Yes. But, so talk to me about that process and also the types of work they're doing so that our listeners can get Definitely. appreciation for the entry points. Yeah, so there's you know four individuals mm -hmm. that I was able to serve as their uh, fraternity advisor um, back when I was living here in southern Ohio. So I was, you know, advisor for Delta Chi, so did that for about 10 years, so I was able to interact with, you know, different members of the fraternity. Most of them happened to be the chapter president, so I had a pretty close relationship with them. So um, one of them is basically kind of my junior salesperson. So some of our um, smaller clients, he kind of takes you know care of those people, more client relations. And then we've got um, our two marketing people. One is more kind of PR communications with investors. And then the other one just kind of supports me on all my roles when I'm dealing with you know all different types of clients. And then the other one, um, who's also a poli-sci major, I know there's three poli-sci out of the five of us. So. Um, more operations, just dealing with all of the back-end logistics of, you know, you know, moving money around and getting stuff to productions and, um, you know, getting all the legal paperwork done, dealing with our bank, dealing with our lawyers. So that's basically kind of what they're doing. So it's, you know, all four of, all four of them kind of support my role as, you know, financier and executive producer. Did they come straight to, the, to you from college? They worked before. Oh, no, 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 yeah. So right. one, of them's, uh, one of them was out of... Um, you know, I think he was working in Chicago for about 
eight years before he came, and then the, the youngest one uh, was working at Gallo for two years, and then after the pandemic decided, hey, I'd like to come work with you. Yeah. So. What a great story. I got to yeah. meet them. Great, great, just great people. So I'm going to switch gears now and move, take you for a trip down memory lane. Okay. So I've got a bunch of questions about your time here at Miami, and we'll just quick fire through them. So when you look at your, back on your time at Miami, who was your favorite professor? Oh, I just like I said before, uh, Dr. Uh, Warren Mason. Um, I think that was just an amazing experience, um, you know, to kind of see the world or more Europe at that point. And it was a really interesting time because we all had to write, you know, our, our version of a, is it called capstone? I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so our capstone. So my capstone was on why Turkey should not be led into the European Union, which they are a member of the European Union. And you look at some of the challenges um, Europe has been having with you know, Turkey over the last, you know, 15, 20 years, I think it was maybe a little ahead of the curve. But I, I focus on big, you know, macro type of trends like, you know, how do you, you know, I think it was, I forgot the population of Turkey at the time, I think it was like 80 million. But how do you now have open borders with a country that, you know, has that many people? And then also back, you know, when I wrote it, we were having issues with like Saddam Hussein in Iraq. They they border Turkey and then the Kurds um, and the Turks were not, you know, they were fighting with each other. And then also just the influx of immigrants from Turkey into, you know, areas all over Europe. And there's a large Turkish population in Germany and they were having a lot of issues. So those are kind of the topics that I focused on. It's a very controversial capstone by past, so. Have you ever gone back to read the paper you wrote? You know what? I have, I have not. Well, I read it maybe a couple years after, but actually I should reread it. I have not, but I think it would be interesting yeah. to, to see what, what happened. But as it was, um, you know, but just being in Europe and kind of listening to all the different people, you know, Turkey was always, because that was such a hotbed issue at the time because they were deciding, do we let them in or not? And some of the reasons that they said, you know, were, were, were part of that. And so it was fun to kind of research right. that. I love it. What subject did you least enjoy? <laughs> Probably, I would say, um, business law and the economics courses, not like macro and microeconomics, like not the 201 and 202. It's and even oh, I forgot the exact names of those, but those upper level courses were very challenging. Moving on, <laughs> <laughs> you talked about being in a fraternity. What other co-curricular activities were you involved in? Um, so I did a lot of work actually with the city of Oxford, um, and a lot of it was through the Greek community, just getting everyone mobilized. Did a lot of um, you know cleanup work around the city to make it look a little bit more presentable. Um, I served as interfraternity council president. I was chapter president, so I was pretty involved with that. So I mean, anything related to that, I was kind of you know had my hands in that. So what was your favorite time of the day for class? Essentially, were you a morning person or not? I am 100% a morning person. So back then, we would have, you know, I don't know the standard now, but we would have classes Monday through Friday, and there was a lot of 8 a.m., so everything was kind of front-loaded in the day. So I was used to getting up at 6.30, have my breakfast, and I was able, you know, to then, you know, go to class early. So I always had 8 o'clock classes pretty much for four straight years. I'm just used to that. And if I recall correctly, you still are. You're, you're an early riser. Oh, I'm an early riser that's yeah great. that's why I wonder I hear sometimes that some people don't have classes on like Fridays or they don't have class till like noon I'm like <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> different body clocks right <laughs> so what was your favorite night of the week while you were here at Miami so you know nightlife was a lot different uh, you know in the late 90s early 2000s versus versus uh, Miami now 
I wouldn't say that there was a specific night of the week. Probably I'd say Friday, Friday happy hour, which I don't think really happens here. But, you know, and when I say happy hour, happy hour started at like 5 or 5.30, not at noon or whatever. <laughs> right. <laughs> Clarifying comment. Right. <laughs> yeah, good. Did you intern while you were here? So what did I do? Um, I actually did not intern. Uh, I did not have an internship, and that's one thing I regretted. I had the opportunity to travel the world, so I did that instead. So I did the capstone program um, the, my, the summer before my senior year, and then the summer of my junior year I spent in Cape Town, South Africa. Very interesting. What were you doing there? So you... one of my friends was studying abroad there, so I just stayed mm. with them for two months. Um, and it's been, you know, I haven't, I'm planning on going back there in January. I haven't gone back in obviously almost 20 years. It was the most beautiful mm. city in the world and the most beautiful people. Um, just a really amazing, you know, um, and that was, you know, obviously, um, I forgot when the end of apartheid was, but it was only a couple years afterwards. So it was really interesting to see, you know, the the city kind of grow um, mm -hmm. and kind of evolve um, kind of post-apartheid. Cape Town's on my bucket list. I haven't got there yet. So where did you live in your freshman year? So my freshman year, I lived in Scott Hall. So Scott Hall, I still have my affinity to that. Um, dorm um, or residence hall now and there's one two three there's about four people I still keep in touch with um, from my freshman year so uh, we see each other sporadically um, you know but we always kind of keep in touch uh, through texts etc so uh, yeah so I have my corridor mates that I still talk to I love that about Miami I hear it so often about the friends that you make almost on day one become lifetime friends it's something that mm -hmm. to me really sets us apart from many other college Definitely. experiences yeah what's your favorite building on campus not up to We'll come to Uptown in a minute. Um, probably Harrison Hall, just because I spent most of my time there. And I think, you know, having, you know, most of my, you know, coursework was probably there. So I spent most of the time in Harrison. Yeah. What about your favorite spot, Uptown? Uptown? I know things have changed drastically. So I would say as far as eating, obviously, we have Fanshin that's still here, the Chinese restaurant Uptown, and then obviously Skipper's. So, I mean, I got to, I got to meet Andy and uh, Terry Amarantos as owners back then. I still keep in touch with them, which is great. So they're still there with smiling all the time. So I love that. <laughs> so, and, and because you come back to Miami off and on for alumni work for Foundation Board and perhaps for other things too, you do get to come back uptown. So do you, do you revisit Skipper's? Oh, yeah, yeah. I always text uh, Andy and I was be like, hey, I'm going to come into town and he'll <laughs> right. meet me there. And yeah, we'll talk for a few minutes. It's great. So you talked about your trip to Europe as being a really defining moment. Are there any other other memorable or personal experiences you want to share from your time here at Miami? Um, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it's coming to travel. So another summer before, I just I did a, an Asia trip. Um, so I got one of those. I forgot what they call them, like Asia Pass or something like that. Right. Yeah, yeah, so it was through like Cathay Pacific. Yeah. So I was, you know, kind of based out of Hong Kong and I would kind of do, I went to Singapore, I went to Bangkok, I went to Tokyo, I went to Seoul, um, I went uh, obviously Singapore and I forgot, I think um, Kuala Lumpur. So I got to experience mm -hmm. all of that. And as a college student, you know, you don't really have much money. So you're, 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 you know, being resourceful, but you know, your dollar went a lot uh, further there yeah. back then. So. Well, you travel differently and you see, and you see more of the country the place right. because of it. So I was fortunate enough, my family allowed me to, I mean, I visited probably 40 countries yeah. um, while I was in college. Wow. And so, so I do regret not having the internship, but I got to have that, you know, kind of global 
incredible experience. experience. And then quite honestly, I haven't really traveled that much post-college, just been busy with work and life. And um, so I really haven't done a whole lot. So I'm glad I got that opportunity. And, and as those listening, you know, you, you travel probably a lot for work. Correct. That's very different. Yes. <laughs> so it, it, it's minimizing time in country sometimes. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I'm in Europe. Um, yeah. You know, I was just in Dubai and then I was in India. So, but it's, you know, it's a business trip is very different. Um, you don't really get a chance to kind of see the sights. And that's so, right. and, yeah. and be among the people. Exactly. You that's right. When you look back to your time at Miami, is there anything you would have done differently? Um, probably would have studied a little bit harder. <laughs> um, you know, and yeah. I spent, you know, I think my greatest, you know, experience at Miami was honestly just being with networking with professors, um, networking with other students that were different from you. And, you know, yes, I had my, you know, little fraternity sorority world that I hung out with, but I did a lot of stuff kind of outside of that. Um, you know, you know, being involved with like the Indian Student Association and some, you know, other groups. And so getting just a different perspective, um, Miami does have lots of different people, but you sometimes have to find them and you just have to, um, you know, I think also networking with professors. I think a lot of students don't do that. It's just, they go into class and they leave. But, you know, professors want to talk to students. You just have to ask them. And, and in my experience is if you don't ask, no one's going to help you. And I'm glad you've mentioned it, especially for first-year students who might be listening. You know, the faculty who come and work here sign up for a different experience themselves. They sign up because they want to work closely with students. And when I interviewed for my job, one of the defining characteristics here was just how busy the building is and how the students were lining up outside doors to see visit with their professors and how the professors are just willing to get involved. I love it. So when you look back, is there a class you wish you'd taken? Wish I've taken. Um, <laughs> that's a... I'll take that maybe as a no. <laughs> Probably not. I mean, I have to think. I know. I don't know. I don't. I, I can't think of a course right now that I. I think I wish I would have probably um, focused more on actually getting that double major in finance because I think originally I was I was kind of you know toying with the oh I want to do you know law school and so maybe do more business law but once I did the business law portion I just kind of focused on that but there are other parts of finance mm -hmm. that I just didn't take the coursework and looking at what I actually do for my day job right now you know which is basically investment banking private equity I probably should have just taken those other finance more. courses. Yeah no I love it. So as we close the interview I'm just looking now for the advice for different groups of um, listeners so I'd like you to take this question in two parts parts, give advice, but give advice to incoming first years and then give advice to people who've just started in, in their career. So I would say the first one as far as first year students, like I kind of touched on before, I think it's very important to understand and learn networking. I think in any industry that you go into, you must learn how to network. And networking on a base level is having basic communication skills and being able to talk to people. So I think you know you start with your friends, then you go into whatever student organization you want to be a part of, your professors, your classmates. But you always have to introduce yourself to people, and it's hard. It's it's it is not easy. And I think that will kind of set you apart from everyone else. Is at least you're reaching out to people. I think especially 
post-COVID, a lot of these current students, they just didn't really interact a whole lot towards the end of their high school or beginning of high school. But that, you know, person-to-person -person contact is very important. And so I think everyone hides behind their phones and is texting and messaging. And, you know, I think just the face-to-face, -face I think, is very important. So I think communication skills is built um, that way. So I think that's uh, the advice I would give to first-year students. And, uh, you know, there's a multitude of ways to do that. And then for, you know, you know, students that are just starting off in a career, I think it's important to learn your industry, not just your job, but just learn your industry and learn the trends that are, you know, going to affect it or changing it. And then also just kind of util utilizing your Miami network. I mean, there's so many students that randomly reach out to me on LinkedIn and say, hey, do you mind having a, a conversation? So I would tell students, current students and also students that have graduated, I think, you know, if you're going in it with the intention of just networking and you know not trying to get a job out of it or internship out of it, I would say most alumni would love to have a conversation just to, so they can share their experience and kind of give you advice. So feel free to reach out and you know I think nine times out of ten they'll respond and you'll have a conversation and I think it will be beneficial. And I love that and I think it's a really good reminder to our students who are listening, COVID's affected people differently and, and we do know that and to your point people have retrenched quite a lot and, and what I'm enjoying about seeing our first years back or right. starting college now that there's a lot more enthusiasm to get involved and get engaged but to listen to your advice you know keep that momentum going build friendships yep. network reach out to any visitor that comes on campus right. reach out to any alum because mm -hmm. that's what that's what makes our well there's so many so wonderful special. alumni that Incredible. come back to speak and that's it's right. I know the attendance in the last couple of years has dropped you know a lot and I know a lot of it was COVID related but I would challenge all of the current students and there's a reason why they're coming back here because they want to help you so just show up and then ask them a question so true so thank you so much Siraj for the gift of your time to allow me to record this podcast as we've already indicated one defining characteristic of Miami University is just how engaged our alumni are how willing they are to continue to find ways to support the school its students our faculty our staff and other alumni so thank you Siraj and go well as you continue in your journey beyond high street thank you so much Jenny